0: At Zoe, it's our practice to preach through whole books of the Bible. Uh, we read the text, we explain it, uh, and then we try to look at what its relevance is for us in our lives. And the Bible is always relevant. It's God's word. Um, so honestly, I, I want to preach through the entire Bible. I don't know if we're going to get there in my lifetime. Um, we'll be in 1 Samuel for probably the next, probably to the end of the year or so. And then we'll be in 2 Samuel after that. So it's going to take a little while. Um, but I think it's going to be really good. Today we're in 1 Samuel 7. We looked at verses 1 and 2 last week. Today we're going to look at the rest of the chapter. We're going to start in verse 3. Um, but let me start reading in verse 1 just so you can get a little bit of the context. First Samuel chapter 7. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines." So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, "'Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you.' So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, "'We have sinned against the Lord.' Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Then when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel." And the people of, and when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Verse 12, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called his name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this afternoon. God, we ask for your grace and your help. Lord, to understand your word, we know that you have already condescended yourself to give us your word, that you have spoken to us. But God, we know that we need your spirit to soften our hearts, to open up our eyes to open up our ears that we might receive. So, God, we look to you with humility, knowing that you don't owe us anything, but at the same time, God, we look to you with expectation, knowing that you are gracious and kind and merciful, that you are our Father. God, we know that at the end of the day, we need this word. There's so much for us in this text So, God, I pray that you would give us the ability to receive the gold that is buried in this. And, God, I pray that at the end of this, we will be changed, that we might live for you. Most of all, God, we pray that you would glorify your son during this time. God, we are not here for ourselves. We are here for him and his glory and his honor and his praise. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. One of the greatest moments of Charles Howard Candler's life was when his father, Asa Candler, inducted him into what he called the Holy of Holies. That was his words. Okay, not mine. It was in the biography that he wrote of his father. I don't want to be blasphemous or sacrilegious. But he said that his father had decided it was finally time to initiate his son into the secret mystery. What was Candler's secret mystery? What was their Holy of Holies? Well, even though this was some hundred years ago from today, what Charles Candler learned about then remains, even to this very moment, one of the most carefully guarded secrets on the planet. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do these names sound familiar to you? What I'm talking about is the recipe for merchandise 7X, which you might not know, but it's the popular name for what is commonly known as Coca-Cola Coke. That's the co-name that they have internally merchandise seven X. That's the flavor of Coca-Cola. Asa Candler was the original founder of the Coca-Cola company back in 1892. And while Coke has been, uh, often imitated, there are many knockoffs, even Pepsi. It has never been exactly duplicated because the ridiculous thing is it's barely an exaggeration to say that it would be about as easy to steal a bar of gold from Fort Knox as it is to steal the original recipe of Coke from the Coca-Cola factory. Now, why do you think that is? I think you know, right? The answer is actually pretty simple. See, the thing is about recipes is if you have it, you can follow it. Right? If you have the recipe for something, you can make it exactly if you follow the instructions. You know exactly what to do now today. Our passage is not about soda, right? It's not about products today. Our passage actually is about revival, revival, but unlike with Coke, when we talk about revival, it's not sacrilegious to use language like the Holy of Holies, because when we talk about revival, we're talking about the actual presence of God. Drawing near to the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth. Now, you might be wondering, what is this guy even talking about? Right? I thought he went to masters. Why is he talking about revival? And what does he even mean by revival? I mean, I know that all of you come from different places, different churches, different, even backgrounds in Christianity, maybe even other faiths. So when you hear the word revival, you're thinking about something, or do you have a picture? Maybe some of you kind of go old school. You're thinking about Billy Graham, right? You think about big tents. You think about people packing the house. You think about a preached word, a gospel presentation. You, you hear just as I am playing in your mind, an altar call, people making decisions for Christ. Or maybe you think of something maybe a little bit more modern, like early 2000s, something emotional, right? Ambient music, you know, the keyboard's playing and everyone has their eyes closed and the lights are dim and people are rededicating their lives to God. Really feeling the spirit move in this place. They always say in this place. Revival can't take place in a tent. Revival does include emotions. It should to a certain extent. But what revival is, I think, has been best defined by the old reform professor, Richard Lovelace. He said that true revivals are, quote, broad scale movements of the Holy Spirit's work in renewing spiritual vitality in the church and in fostering its expansion in mission and evangelism. Okay, that's kind of a wordy definition, better read than heard. But if you didn't get that, basically in a a nutshell, what true revival is, is the spirit of God working in people. It's just an increase in life and vitality in the church and it spreads beyond the walls of the church. The pages of scripture are filled with this kind of work of God moving among his people, the archives of church history too. I mean, if you think about the days of Josiah, you remember one of the few good Kings in Judah, they find the Bible. The Bible had been lost. They find it in the temple. They read it. They start the Passover for the first time. And who knows how long the people of God, the people of Israel, they turn back to him if you think of something a little bit more modern, you think about the great awakening in America before it was America, the United States. Think about Jonathan Edwards. You think about how he preached these sermons and people were like crying and yelling out in the pews. What must I do to be saved? Because they were so broken over their sin. I mean, if you think about it, when you read about revivals, whether in scripture or in church history, it sounds pretty great. Doesn't it? I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if this happened today? Right, That all of the sudden you felt this fire and zeal for God, unlike anything you felt before. I know a lot of us wish we had more of that. Or maybe, you know, your neighbors and your family members, your loved ones, maybe people that you've been reaching out to for years, maybe all of a sudden they're interested in spiritual things and they're coming to faith. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to see our neighborhoods and our city and our country and the world transformed by the gospel? Of course, I think every professing Christian in this room would want that. All to the glory of God. It's like Habakkuk. We went over this last year. Habakkuk 3, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Do them again. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. Now... This intro is getting a little long, and I had that oversharing in the beginning. I apologize. So let me get to the point. We talked about the secret recipe for Coke, but the reason why I brought that up, the reason why I talked about recipes is because the recipe for revival, unlike with Coke, is no secret. You can find it in the pages of the Bible. In fact, we see a copy of the ingredients right here in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Now, a little bit about the context. 1 Samuel 7 actually comes after 1 Samuel 6 and 5 and 4 and 3 and 2 and 1 and you're like thank you pastor obvious but the reason why i emphasize it is because you have to read the events that transpire here in light of what just happened because if we just jumped into 1 Samuel 7 and i know that some of you are visiting we welcome you hopefully you can get up to speed i think you can get it i know you're smart but if you just read this, you'll see certain things, right? Like God defeating the Philistines. But if you've been with us this whole time, you know it's not just God defeating the Philistines. Because what happened a few chapters back? The Philistines and Israel met on the field of battle. And guess what? God didn't help the Philistines. I mean the Israelites defeat the Philistines. Or you might look at this and you'll say, oh, the Israelites, they, they, they worship God. You know, they, they repent, they turn from their sin, and you might think that that's great. I mean, that happens every once in a while in the Bible. But if you've been with us in 1 Samuel, you know that last time, in fact, no time in this text did the people of Israel do this. So all of this hits different because of what we saw the past few weeks. And here's the thing, okay, even though this is before. Pentecost. This is before the Holy Spirit fell upon the church. So Richard Lovelace's definition, if you're paying attention, is a little bit, uh, futuristic for this passage. You could say that what we see here isn't just a military victory. It's just not another old hat story of Israel worshiping God or turning back to him. It's not just God doing a mighty work in his people. This chapter is actually about God bringing out revival. In Israel, And the amazing thing about 1 Samuel 7 is that it shows us what goes into that. There's something we can learn here. There's something we can respond to so that we can at least pursue a revival like this in our church, in our lives. So let's get into it. As we always do, we're going to look at this text under three headings. I tried to do four one times, and Eric said, never do that again. So three headings, three headings, the return, the result, the remembrance. Three R's for you. First, the return. We'll start with verse two. Okay, even though we're starting in verse three, I want to get into the context. I want to pick up where we left off. First Samuel 7 verse 2, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath Dream, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Okay, we touched on that last week, but let's talk about what this means. To lament is to what? It's to mourn. Okay, it's to be sad. But what does it mean to, to lament or be sad after someone or something, after the Lord? It's kind of confusing. Okay now the ESV is a good translation uh, but the ESV is picking up on something that is even confusing a little bit in the Hebrew. It's kind of an awkward construction. But basically if you look into it the word translated lament here can also be translated as yearn to yearn after. Okay so here's the general idea if you kind of combine these ideas the people began to finally grieve over their relationship with God or lack thereof. The people finally started to feel bad about how things were going between them and God. You could say that the people finally began to miss God. They started to feel like something was off vertically between them and heaven. And it cut them to the heart. See, verse 2, what the author is telling us here is that emotions changed. And that's really the first ingredient, you could say, of revival. It's a change in how you feel. Okay, now don't get me wrong. It's not the only thing, but it has to be there. A feeling that something is wrong between me and God. Now, let me ask you guys, have you ever felt that? Ever? Maybe in big ways, maybe in small ways, but have you felt that? I mean, this is what Christians call conviction, conviction of sin. Or a burden of guilt? Have you ever felt like something that you did or something about you made your relationship with God broken in some way? I remember when I first became a Christian, I was 18. And the funny thing about it is that I already thought that I was a Christian when I became a Christian. I had already prayed a prayer to accept Jesus into my heart way back when I was five. So I thought I had been a Christian for 13 years and I'd heard that Jesus died for my sins. And I didn't deny that, but here's the thing. Even though I knew that Jesus had quote unquote died for my sins, there was no understanding really at a heart level for me as to what sins even were. It's like, okay, I did some, things that I guess are bad. I I made some mistakes. Maybe I broke some rules, but there was no feeling that what I did had hurt and offended and wronged a holy God, my creator. And of course the whole time I would have said, yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but I didn't truly feel that I was a bad person. See, talk to any real Christian in this room and he or she will tell you that there came a point in their lives where it was like, I'm a wretch. At least I am not the person that I'm supposed to be or I've made a mess of my life. Some of you had to hit rock bottom for this to happen. Maybe you didn't have to go that far, but something clicked inside of you where you felt bad about who you were or what you did. And it happened to me when I was 18 or I was 17. It took me a while to become a Christian. I had to turn 18 first. My friend called me called me out. It was actually on uh, AOL, um, but he called me out. I kind of dated myself as being a millennial. Um, that's why I'm so annoying. But anyway, my friend called me out, and he was a brand new Christian. Uh, and he said, you know, I heard this sermon from Matthew chapter 7 at youth group, at church, and I didn't show up because I didn't really care about God that much, even though I was a Christian. Uh, and he said, this sermon was so crazy. He said, many people will show up. At the end of their lives, and they'll say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? Don't you know me, Jesus? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. And he's like, the pastor was bringing out this idea that there are two roads, that there is a wide road that leads to destruction, and many people are on it, and there's a narrow road that leads to life, and few are those who find it. And then he said, you know what? I think you're on the narrow road. I mean, I think you're on the wide road, man. <laughs> he literally said that. He said, honestly, I think you're going to hell, Jesse. Jesse. He said, because your life doesn't reflect anything that has to do with God. He was like, I can totally see you showing up and saying, Lord, Lord, didn't I, you know, go to church and stuff. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. So obviously I was pretty mad about it. You know, I was like, how dare you talk to me in this way, you disrespectful guy. Like I've been going to church way longer than you. But my friend and calling me out, God used that to save me. Because for the first time, I realized I actually might need saving. Needed. He pointed out my hypocrisy. And that's what I needed to have for me to, to see my own sin. See, it starts with a feeling that something is wrong. Okay, you have to know that you need to be saved to be saved. But it doesn't stop there. The second ingredient is repentance. In fact, a lot of this sermon is about repentance. But look at verse three. The people start feeling bad. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Okay, there's a lot in here. But notice, first of all, that Samuel steps back into the picture. Okay, this book is called First Samuel. Samuel hasn't been around for chapters. Samuel hasn't been around since the beginning of chapter four. A lot has happened since we last heard from Samuel. Israel's army went to war twice. They got decimated. Eli and his sons died. The ark was returned or captured and returned. I guess you could say, and it's been chilling for 20 years in curious dream. He's been a prophet for all this time. We haven't heard a word of what he said. Finally, when he speaks, And when people are ready to listen, what he has on his lips is repentance. And honestly, he probably been saying this the whole time. It's just now finally that people feel bad enough that they want to hear from the prophet of God, what they must do. And this is what he says. He says, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, he says, return to the Lord with your whole heart and put your money where your mouth is. Put away your idols. If you're really serious about your relationship with God, then get rid of these other gods and go to him. See, this is repentance. Repentance is a 180 turn. Okay. Literally in Greek, repentance has to do with changing your mind. But in Hebrew, the idea of repentance has to do more with changing direction. You're going this way, but then you turn around and you go this way. You can only go one way at a time. You can't go two ways. That's why in repentance, you turn away from something and you turn toward something else. I remember C.S. Lewis was asked about this once and he was writing about it. You know, people were like, well, isn't repentance kind of like a good work that we must do to be saved? He said, no, repentance is actually going to God. You don't have to do it before you go to God. It is going to God. So here's the question that Samuel asked. Okay, you say you feel bad. Are you actually going to turn around and go to him? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians real quick. Keep your place in 1 Samuel. But 2 Corinthians 7, <clears throat> I want to show you something real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Oh, it's taking me a while. All right, I want to look at verse 9. Verses 9 and 10, let me show you. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth. And he says, as it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. See, feeling bad about your sin isn't necessarily a good thing. It could be a good thing or a bad thing. There is such a thing as worldly sorrow. You know, going back to when I was, uh, when I first became a Christian... The interesting thing was there was a gap. Like I said, I was 17 when my friend called me out. I became a Christian when I was 18. It didn't didn't take a full year, but there was a gap between when I was convicted and when I realized that I wasn't a Christian and when I actually gave my life to Christ, you could say. And I remember I met with my youth pastor. I emailed him and I said, can we meet? Cause I had this, I'm having like this crisis of faith. And he said, sure. And I remember we were talking at dinner and I said, you know, I realize now that I'm not a Christian And I'm sure he knew that I wasn't. He'd seen the fruit of my life. He's probably like, duh, of course, this guy's not a Christian. But he was like, okay, okay. So what do you think? And I said, I know I'm not a Christian and I believe in God. But honestly, I don't know if I want to be a Christian. I don't know if I want to. Because I realized in that moment that I had been living my life for myself. I had been going this certain way, the way that I wanted to go. And that if I wanted to become a Christian, it would necessarily entail for me to go toward God, which was not the direction I was going. And so I was like, I don't know if I want that. It seems hard. It doesn't seem as fun as what I had mapped out for me. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, whether it's in big ways or small ways. Like you have an issue, right? And you know it. Right, It could be a laziness problem, an anger problem, a lust problem, a selfishness problem, a gossip problem, whatever it might be. And you feel bad about it, right? It's not like you think it's a good thing. But at the end of the day, you're not sure if you actually want to stop doing it because you kind of like it. Like You feel it's bad, but when you consider the alternative, okay, I'm going to keep going in this way or I'm going to have to like change my life. You don't know if you want to. And when you fall, of course you feel bad. You might even weep. You feel so bad, but then you're right back at it. And the thing is, maybe you don't plan to sin in that way again, but it keeps happening. Why? Because you don't plan not to. Like I have a pretty good friend and this guy would always cry about every sin that he commits. And at first I was so hopefully he never listens to this. Uh, you don't know who you are. It's my other friend. Um, but I had a pretty good friend, and he would always cry. And at first, it really impressed me. I was like, you know, I wish that I was so soft-hearted that I would weep over my sin until I realized as time went on that he was always crying. And it was never changing. He did change eventually. It was just slow. I was impatient. But the tears don't necessarily mean repentance. Repentance is a change. It's a turn. Look at the text. Samuel calls the people to put away the Baals and the Astaroth. Baal is a false god. In fact, one of the more well-known false gods of the Old Testament, Dagon's son, if you remember Dagon, that's kind of the mythology. Astaroth was a false goddess of fertility and other things like that. This is the first time in all of 1 Samuel that we've heard about idolatry. Okay, we know they've had spiritual problems, but we haven't seen any idols. Uh, if you read Judges, you could assume that they had them, but we haven't seen them. Now the veil is lifted and we see the true spiritual state and Samuel calls them out. Now we could get into kind of like the minutia of these false gods. Here's the general gist. Here's the big picture. Okay, If there's one thing that these false god gods promised was that they would, at the end of the day, serve you. Of course, they required sacrifice, they required offering, they asked for worship. But what they promised to give you, like in the case of Astaroth, was fertility. And that was fertility in your family, fertility for the farm, you know, like crops. At the end of the day, they were easy to follow. In fact, if you study like Astaroth, for example, I said I wouldn't get too into it, but just one thing. Part of worshiping Astaroth was cult prostitution, at least sometimes. So, I mean, you sleep with a prostitute. I don't, I don't want to get too graphic here for the kids, but you sleep with a prostitute. That's your worship. Is that hard for most people? What sacrifice does that cost you? That's your worship. And at the end of the day, hopefully you get more kids or whatever. It was religion that was ultimately all about you. See, here's the thing. Okay, let me ask you this today. Out of love, okay, no one here, I know it, right, has a statue of Baal or Astroth in your home, right? I was looking in your closet when I went over and I was like, I knew there's a Baal in here. There wasn't, okay? And no one has it, okay? No one has that today. But let me ask you though, have you ever turned away from a life that was at heart all about you? Because you could slap on different names to this idolatry, but it's all the same thing deep down inside. Have you ever turned away from a life where you're the one who calls the shots? You're the one who sets the goals. You're the one who makes the big decisions at the end of the day. See, you might be a pretty moral person. You might be nice. You might be religious even, but this is the fundamental heart question. Have you ever turned away? Have you ever repented from you being the center of the universe? to the God who actually is at the center of the universe, the true and living God. See, I think that this, this is why repentance is kind of an unpopular doctrine to talk about. You know, I heard a pastor say once, what if instead of being called believers, Christians were called repenters, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with being called believers. We are called to believe our salvation is by faith. Don't get me wrong. But the thing about belief is that you can kind of find the loophole in it if you want. You can say, well, I believe in all those things, but your life doesn't change. And the Bible warns us against it even. In James, what does it say? It says, even the demons believe and shudder. They know everything about God. But do they turn toward him? No, they don't. What if we were called repenters instead? How would that change the way that we view ourselves, the way that we look at Christianity, the way that we call people to faith? Because remember what Jesus said in Mark 1 when he started his ministry. He didn't say just repent or just believe. He said repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. What if we recognize even in our name the need to actually turn to God to want him, not to just believe some facts on a piece of paper, but to actually want to go to him because that's the issue. See, repentance is really the secret sauce of revival. It's not a secret. Verse four. So what did the people do after all this time? What did the people do? So the people of Israel, they put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they serve the Lord only. This is an incredible thing in the context of this book. They actually do it. They repent. This is the return. The people have been far from God. They viewed him superstitiously. They presumed upon him, but here they go back to him. And this leads to the second point, the result The result. What is the fallout of this return? Samuel has some more instructions. If you look at the text, he calls the people. He says, all Israel. And you have to understand, okay, it's not the entire country showing up like every single man, woman, and child, but it is the entire country in the sense that everyone is represented. And if you read the book of Judges and you kind of follow the geography, which is kind of hard because we don't even know what these places are a lot of the time. But the thing about the Judges before the monarchy is that Israel wasn't really united. It was like 12 tribes. They were kind of loosely connected. They were like cousins. But the, even the Judges, when they ruled, they would rule like an area for the most part where they lived. But Samuel says, this time we're bringing the entire, like all the sons of Israel are going to be here. Every tribe from Dan to Beersheba. They're they're represented here. This is a national, this is the people of God being called to repentance. And the whole country does show up. Now they go to Mizpah. Samuel is starting to unify the country. And Samuel's intention is to pray, okay, to intercede, if you look at verse 6. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Okay, what's going on here? Okay, first they show up. That's good. Okay, they actually show up. No promises except that he'll pray for them. He doesn't say, come here and I'm going to make all your problems go away. He just says, I'll pray for you. They show up. And then they pour out water before the Lord. And most questions, if you do like scholarly study, they revolve around what is up with this water? Because there's nothing about the Old Testament law that really reflects this. Okay. There's nothing about a water pouring out ritual. So they say, is this like an early baptism thing? Kind of like maybe even where John the Baptist got his ideas later. Or is this kind of like a Lamentations 219 kind of thing where the Bible actually says pour out your heart like water. That's later, but kind of this idea. The truth is, we don't know, because the Bible doesn't explain it. We just have to go with what the Bible says. But look at what the Bible says again. They gathered at Mizpah. They drew water. We don't know exactly why, but they poured it out. But where did they pour it out? Before the Lord. Do you see that? Before the Lord. How could they pour out water? If God was at Kiriath Jerim, remember the ark is at Kiriath Jerim, the box of God is there. How could they pour out water before him? See, there's already something different here. Before they thought they lost the battle because they forgot to bring God. This time they understand something more. I don't know exactly how this happened. Maybe Samuel told them, but they're starting to recognize God as God overall. Do you see that? It's not like, oh, we, oh, God's over there, Samuel. We got to bring up. The superstition is fading away. They know that God is present even here. And what do they do? They fast and they confess their sins. And it says that Samuel judged the people of Israel there. Now, I've talked a lot about the judges. Okay, maybe you've read the book of Judges. Do you know why they're called judges? In fact, I don't think I ever explained this ever at Zoe. So I'll do it now. Okay. When we think judge, we're thinking about like a court of law, like a gavel, like hitting this, you know, that's not exactly what the word implies in Hebrew. The word means basically ruler or leader. Okay. Now there was an element of justice to it. They were supposed to lead righteously, but it just means leader. So Samuel takes up the role as the leader of Israel. Now this is pretty crazy because Samuel, what is he? He is the first true prophet that has really showed up in Israel in a long time. He was raised up as a priest. He was trained as a priest in the house of Eli. And, you know, he wasn't uh, of Aaronic lineage, so he couldn't become the high priest. But he was raised as a priest. And now he is the ruler. Okay, There are no kings, but he is the prophet. He is the priest. And he is the leader of Israel. And what does he do? What does this truly godly man do? He intercedes for them. Now, one of the most famous revivals in church history, I talked about it, one of the most famous real revivals in church history took place in the 1600s, okay, in New England. It happened uh, in kind of a a pretty big area, and there are a lot of people involved, a lot of churches, but one of the main figures of this revival was Jonathan Edwards. You guys know Jonathan Edwards? right? He is, to this day, Still very well known. Okay. He, uh, he actually was Aaron Burr's grandfather. Kind of fun fact. Um, but he is, some people think the smartest person who has ever been born on American soil. Okay. He was just a genius. His philosophy is still read to this day, but he was part of this revival. Okay. And the thing was, he preached faithfully his entire ministry, right? He preached on heaven. He preached on hell. He preached on the gospel. He preached on God. But when the great awakening happened, he was preaching, uh, his, uh, kind of the catalyst for it. He was preaching this one sermon, his most famous sermon. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Okay. You might know it. Okay. Maybe you read about it in school or something, but he was preaching this sermon and people, as I said, were so convicted. They actually cried out during the message. What can I do to be saved? Because they felt like if they died in that moment, they would just go to hell and they needed salvation. They were so moved. But the thing is, it's not like he was preaching something new. He didn't try out like a new tone of voice. He wasn't yelling this time. He didn't install new lights in the background. Just God did something to convict the hearts of the people. And that's what we see here. Because Samuel has been a prophet for decades. Every indication has been that he was faithful this whole time, only proclaiming the true word of God. But it's been decades. Only now has something changed. And we'll return to this in a minute. But something is changing. Revival is happening. And then the Philistines show up again. And this is perfect. The Philistines hear that all of Israel is gathered at Mizpah. It's been 20 years since the tumors and the mice. And so you can imagine they've regained some of their confidence. And I've talked about the Philistines enough, but just remember that they were more advanced. They were stronger. They were better at war than Israel. And so when they show up and all of Israel is gathered and they're praying, Israel this time is scared. This is night and day from the last time we saw them prepare for battle. Last time they brought out the ark, their secret weapon, their magic box. They were so confident that the ground shook and the Philistines were scared. This time, this time Israel is desperate. This time they don't presume that God will for sure deliver them. This time they beg Samuel to cry out for the Lord in desperation. And guess what he does? He does. And do you remember what Eli said a few chapters ago? When he kind of weakly rebukes his sons. He said in 1 Samuel 2.25, he said, If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Samuel intercedes. He says, Between sinful Israel And it's holy God, Israel's true prophet, acting priest and new judge. And he offers a sacrifice and he doesn't just pray. He cries out to the Lord on their behalf. And what does the text say? God answers him. See, the Philistines, they get ready to attack. They have this in the bag. And we saw what happened the past two times. But this time, God supernaturally intervenes. He makes a thunderous mighty sound against them. We don't know if this was an actual thunderclap or if this is just a figure of speech, but something supernatural happens that God does that throws the Philistine army advanced and powerful armed to the teeth into confusion. And this time the Philistines are the ones who are routed. Now, here's the question. If we've been reading first Samuel and we can't answer this question right now, then we got to go back, but hopefully you can answer it. Here's the question. What changed? What changed? What do you guys think changed? I mean, is it God didn't know how to thunder 20 years ago and he learned this? No. God could have done that way back then, the very first time. So what actually changed? What happened? Why was the result of this battle so different? And I think you already know the answer to this question, I hope. But here's the thing. Okay. Step back for a moment. Think about your own life for one second. What do you hope that God would do for you? Just think about it. All right, we believe in God, the Christians here. All right, we believe that God is real, that he is acting, that prayer is important, of course. All right, what are we doing here on a Sunday afternoon if we don't believe these things? But what do you want God to actually do? And I mean this in a general sense. Maybe it's very specific for you. I and mean, maybe you've been praying for a loved one to be saved for what seems like forever. Maybe you've been praying for your kids to get better. Maybe you've been praying for a better marriage. Maybe you've been praying that America would change or that the world would be saved. I mean, let's be frank, right? World events and like stuff going on in this country take up like a huge chunk of most people's time these days. Like Christians do. I think Christians read political things like on a scale of 10 to 1 when it comes to the Bible. Like Christians are sucked into politics and politics are important. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing intrinsically wrong too with any of these. It's good to pray for your kids and to pray for the salvation of your loved ones. Here's the truth. God can do any of these things anytime. He could save every single person in America today if he wanted to. But the question is, have we followed the recipe to put it that way? Or have we wanted God to bless us, to help us, to answer our prayers, to deliver us, to do stuff on our behalf without first really taking a good look at our own hearts, lamenting over our own sin and turning to him. What does James 4, 8 say? Do you know? It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, of course we can't manipulate God, right? Jonathan Edwards, he, he wrote about that. He proved it in his own life. I mean, he was preaching And it was only later on that revival came. We can't manipulate him, but that doesn't mean God hasn't told us what it does take. He said, draw near to me and then I will draw near to you. We can't have the result we want without the repentance that God wants first. See, sometimes right? God is gracious. Sometimes he does help us beyond what we could ever hope to expect. But that's not what God actually lays out for us in the book. The lesson of this text is clear whatever we want from God, whatever result we hope for, it starts with humbling ourselves first. And the truth is if church history and the Bible is any indication, most of us just don't want to do that. Anything but that. Okay. I'll go to another prayer meeting. There's no getting around it. We don't get the result without the return. There is no return without repentance. Repentance. There is no repentance without lamenting after the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, right? But this is hard for me. Like, I don't want to speak for everyone and say, well, a lot of people don't want to do it. The truth is, a lot of times I don't want to do it myself. And I've been blessed to have been rebuked and corrected many times in my life. Um, Thankfully, um, Eric's on sabbatical from rebuking me, but... I've heard a lot, right? Like what you said wasn't very God honoring what you did or didn't do. It really hurt me. I didn't like that thing that you and your wife or whatever said or did whatever. You're just an arrogant person. I heard that before. Jesse's just a prideful guy. And the truth is I haven't always wanted to hear that. I've been defensive about it. Well, you just misunderstood. I was just joking, dude. The only reason I'm prideful is because I'm so successful. I'm just kidding about the last one. That was a joke. But I've been defensive. I pushed it off. I tried to avoid it. I haven't wanted to hear it. And it just exposes my heart. I still struggle to see myself as the chief of sinners. I still struggle to realize that the first thing God wants me to do as a Christian before I'm a pastor is to cleanse my hands because I'm a sinner to purify my heart because I can be so double-minded And the thing is, I'll pray to God that God would bless our church, that people would be saved, that God would use me to do great things, that he would save my kids. I pray for this area of the world. I pray for Texas, of course. I pray for America sometimes. But the thing is, if I won't turn to him, if you won't turn to him, it is actually, I think you could say, unbiblical to expect God to turn anything else you see what I'm saying? And this leads to the third and final point quickly. Now the remembrance, the remembrance. One of my favorite hymns is come thou Fount." Y'all know it, right? Come thou found of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace. But there's a line in it where it says, here I raise my Ebenezer hither by thine help. I've come. And, uh, I remember one time the guy leading the music at church gave a mini-sermon once on what an Ebenezer is because no one knew, right? Uh, in fact, um, here at Zoe, when James plays it, he actually sings an alternate version that doesn't have Ebenezer in it because no one knows. Like James doesn't want to give a mini-sermon because he knows that we already have enough sermon at this church every week. But we can sing that line today because that line comes from this text, 1 Samuel 7, verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name what? Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer, real quick, it's a compound word, eben and ezer in Hebrew. Eben means stone. Ezer means help. Stone of help. Samuel sets up this monument so that they will never forget how God helped them on this day. And we we do stuff like this now, right? You've maybe been to the 9-11 Memorial in New York City. I mean, we set up certain monuments so that we will never forget. And we do this because it's human nature to forget. Our memories, they're not so great. We're what have you done for us lately kind of people. And even the most tragic or glorious things shrink when they're in the rearview mirror. I mean, if you remember the Israelites in the wilderness... God would always come through for them. He gave them manna. He would give them uh, water. He would give them meat when they wanted it. The second they get a little rumbly in their tummy, right? They're like, "God, you let us out here to die. You never come through for us." But I do. The, I do the same thing. I was trying to find this video. I went to Israel and I was in the wilderness. We went there on a field trip or whatever. And the bus dropped us off and they said, we're going to spend one hour out in the wilderness so you can get a taste of what the Israelites felt. And I had an iPhone and I made a video and I pretended to be an Israelite, kind of. I was like, I'm out in the wilderness. Moses has led us astray. I want to go back to Egypt. They had fish there. Uh, Some people heard me and they rebuked me. But I, I want to show that video, but it's lost the time. I don't know where it is. Samuel understands though. Here's the thing that he understands the need for remembrance. And this is so key. See, here's the thing about turning back to God about revival is that it doesn't guarantee that you're just going to be good with God forever. Okay. You can't just write it into the sunset unto eternity. It happens and it's helpful, but then it ends and we can forget what God has done. And we can go back to treating God like a rabbit's foot. We can fall into the same trap Israel did. We can be like the churches in Revelation. Do you remember when Jesus said, you have lost your first love? You have fallen away from the love that you had at first. I mean, who among us can't relate to that? How many of us can look back at our lives right now and picture a time when we were more in love with God, more faithful, more faithful? Sometimes in the Bible, we just focus on the big moments for good reason, but we get caught up in them. But see, it's oftentimes after the big moments that the real battle is won or lost. It's after the exodus, after they walk through the water, when they're in the wilderness, that the true quality of their relationship with God is tested. You see who they really are. So look at how this chapter ends. Verse 13. So the the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. This is amazing. Okay, if you know the context, what men like Samson couldn't do by brute strength, that is kick the Philistines out of occupying Israel, Samuel does. Not by fighting, but by praying. Was Samuel working out all these years? Maybe, you know, we don't know exactly how buff he was, but we know what he was doing. He was on his knees. And look, you know, when we read ahead, they're going to fight the Philistines again. David and Goliath is still in the future from this text. But they never get dominated in the same way. Do you see that? Verse 14. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. And this is great. Praise God. One of the characteristics of God's blessing on Israel, as talked about in the book of Deuteronomy, was supposed to be peace, that they would have freedom from war. That they wouldn't be oppressed. It seems like everything is changing. The story is starting to wrap up. Chapter 8. We could expect it maybe even to be the epilogue. And they all lived happily ever after with Samuel. But just a little spoiler alert. They don't. Right In the very next chapter. James is preaching on it next week. The people ask for a king. In a discontent way. They get Saul, and this whole thing starts again, and you think, what happened? I thought that they had revival. That's what happens. You can't just ride it forever. We're fickle as people, prone to wander, as one song says. So, What song was that again? Prone to leave the God I love. And this is why Martin Luther said famously that the entire life of the believer is one of repentance. Could you say, Could you? could you think of a more insightful thing To say the entire life is repentance. We're always turning away, but we turn back to him. Now you might be thinking, okay, cool. I guess this guy really likes talking about repentance, but we already talked about that. What about remembrance? Okay. I thought that that was the title of this point. Isn't there more to Ebenezer? There is. Okay. We'll just touch on this and then we'll close. What does Samuel say again? After he raises up this stone Ebenezer, he says, till now the Lord has helped us. Do you see that? That's interesting. Until now, until this point, God has helped us. That's weird because from a certain perspective, it seems like God hadn't really been helping until this point. From a certain perspective, it seems like God finally shows up after being absent for super long. From a certain perspective, you think that Samuel would set up the stone and say, okay, God hasn't been helping us, but from now on, he will but he doesn't partially because Samuel knows the danger of presumption but there's more to this remember the battle or rather the battles that the israelites lost when they lost the ark when hophni and phinehas were killed in fact in fact flip back with me just to chapter 4 verse 1 real quick just a couple pages <clears throat> look at verse 1 and the word of samuel came to all israel now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamp- encamped at where? Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. Ebenezer, it's not just a word. It's a meaningful word, but it's not just a word. It's the place where they had lost Twice. It's the place where they brought out the ark and God did nothing, presumably. But what Samuel understands and what he's saying in effect is that even though things didn't go the way that you wanted, God has been helping us this entire time. Do you see? Because Samuel understood that there was something more important than military victory, than keeping the ark, than keeping Eli's bloodline alive. There was something more important than making sure that we got what we wanted. What was more important... Was that through this, the people would be humbled to the point where they would actually lament after the Lord again. God was willing to let them hurt for years, for decades, so that they would finally turn to Him, so that they would repent with all their hearts. See, the mistake that we could easily make from this text is that revival is the thunder. It's the noise. It's the victory. That could be the result of it. But the revival is actually when they turn to him, when they confess their sin. See, friends, we we want God to come through for us, do we not? And that's not wrong. Dude, we planted this church, right? Because we wanted people to be saved, right? In this area, we wanted to make a difference for the gospel. Of course we wanted to. Why else would we do this? But we dare not presume. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. The Bible just calls us to trust him, to look to him, to ask him for help, to seek his gracious favor. But at the end of the day, to rend our hearts and not just our garments. So all the things that we pray, please heal me, please deliver me, please bless the work that I'm doing, save my kids, save my marriage, save America. Maybe he will, maybe he won't, but you know what the recipe, what the instructions say for you to do. And as the Bible says, right, all these people, they lived this day, they won the battle. No Israelite life was lost from what we know, but all of these people died. As Hebrews 9 says, we're all destined to die. We will all face judgment. Eventually, all of our prayer requests will fade away and it'll just be us and God. And the most important thing, the only important thing at that moment will be, did you turn back to him? Did you cleanse your hands, purify your hearts? Did he draw near to you? We'll close here. Samuel, he judged Israel all the days of his life. He went on a circuit to all these different cities. In fact, he's one of the most faithful people in the entire Bible. He gave his entire life to the ministry. He traveled around Israel. He built an altar, altar, he united the nation, but he wasn't enough. He wasn't enough. And that's why God gave us another intercessor, a prophet, a priest, and a king who gave everything that he had, even his very life. We are sinful. Every person is, and our sin separates us from God. But God sent his only son to die for us, to live the life that we could never, the perfect life we could never live, and then to die the death that we deserve. And he died upon the cross. He bore our sin, our shame, our guilt, our punishment, so that we could live forgiven and freed, so that we could be reconciled to God. And Christian, the cross is our Ebenezer. It's where we see that God's help has come. You know, I started by talking about Coke. And the funny thing is Coke kind of got scared. They had the recipe for merchandise 7X. But there was this thing a couple decades ago called the Pepsi Challenge. Do you all remember that? And Pepsi got people up, you know, in front of a camera and they gave them a blind taste test. And they said, try one. Which one do you like more? And the majority of people like Pepsi more, blind. And Coke freaked out. And they started a brand new drink called New Coke, which was a terrible flop. And it turns out that Pepsi is just sweeter than Coke. Okay, maybe you like Pepsi. Um, praise God. You know, we can all agree to disagree. But Pepsi is sweeter. So when you drink a little bit of it, you like it more. But it turns out people actually like Coke in a can, the majority of people, more. Coke was trying to fix what ain't broke. See, we know what we need to do. You know what you need to do. Before we do anything else, we need to get on our knees and humble ourselves before God. We need to turn from our sin and turn to him. We need to get right with him. And everything else will fall into place. According to his plan and his sovereignty. If it ain't broke, let's not fix it. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you. God, and we know that you are sovereign. We know that your spirit brings conviction. So what we ask, God, is that you would convict us. You would convict us regarding sin. You would convict us regarding righteousness. And I pray for people. I pray for us, but I pray for the people in this room. I pray, God, that if there are people who have sin in their lives, who have been far from you, I pray, God, that today, in response to this word, that they would feel sorrow, that they would mourn over the distance. And I pray that they would seek you. God, and your word is so gracious, God, You say, return to me, and I will return to you. We know that you call us. So, God, will you call us to you? Whatever happens in Zoe Church or in our lives, God, we leave that to you. The fruit is in your control and your hands. We don't worry about it. God, we just want you to take our hearts. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.